Lord, how great for us to realize in the midst of our worship today, you are present. And you are here in might and power. You are here in love and compassion. And you are here to bless. But Lord, we miss the blessing if we attend and go through all of the motions of worship without our heart heart being engaged. Lord, we miss the blessing if we don't mix faith with what we hear. And so, Lord, I pray that you will open our eyes so that we can see Christ like we've never seen him before. That our hearts would be moved and drawn toward him, turning away from all other trusts, completely yielding ourselves to him. For when we see him, then we long to follow him. May that happen today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hard to believe it was 30 years ago in the Olympics in Barcelona, Spain, that one of the most incredible Olympic moments took place. There was a young man from Britain by the name of Derek Redmond who dreamed of winning the gold medal in the 400 meter race and he was well on his way to doing it. It was a semi-final and he was leading and doing well and coming around the last turn, he saw the finish line and that's when his hamstring broke. (laughs) He fell flat on his face Medical attendants began to come to him, but he fought his way up and he began to hop on one foot toward the finish line. (laughs) Then a big man came down, pushing away security guards and grabbed hold of Derek. It was his father, Jim. You don't have to do this, he said. Oh, yes, I do. The father said, okay, then we'll do it together. And you might remember those scenes of a dad helping his son, Derek's face sometimes buried on his father's shoulder as he was weeping and haltingly they went all the way to the finish line. And the crowd first was shocked and then they cheered, then they wept. And it was a beautiful illustration of the fact that He couldn't do it on his own, and his dad was there to help him through. He didn't win the gold medal. But you know, God is right there for us in the midst of our race, so that when we falter and fall, he will hold us up, and he will keep us going. Hebrews chapter 12. Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, a monumental event in the life of our church where we finally get to chapter 12. (laughs) I think you need to understand when you get to this portion of scripture and remind ourselves once again that the people that the writer is writing to are people who want to quit. Some have already decided to quit and to give up the race. He's writing to a group of 
Jewish believers, most likely some who used to be priests and who came to the faith in Christ, as we read about in the book of Acts, there were many of them. And having, having embraced the Lord Jesus, they turned their back on Judaism, but for a while ran well, but then the persecution came, and it was hot persecution, and we've read about it. They were willing to give their lives and willing to lose all that they possessed for the name of Christ, but now they weren't so sure. Because many of the things that they were hoping for didn't materialize like a kingdom. And looking back at Judaism and all of the rituals that brought them comfort, that brought them family association and acceptance in the society, they had rejected, now they were thinking of going back to that because that is better than this. And the writer of Hebrews writes this letter to them, the letter to the Hebrews, saying, no, no, Jesus is better than that. And so that's been the argument through the whole chapter. In chapter 10, verse 36, you have need of perseverance so that after you've done the will of God, you may obtain what is promised, 1036. So there's the admonition. Some of your translations have the word patience. Patience and perseverance are the same thing. Uh, Patience uh, is perseverance when it keeps waiting and waiting and waiting. And so then we also noticed in chapter 11, all of those saints who persevered. Verse 39 of chapter 11, they were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Isn't it interesting in both of these admonitions to perseverance, the idea of the promise is there. After you've done the will of God, you'll receive the promise, but they did the will of God and hadn't yet received the promise, but they were commended for their faith. Perseverance, as William Barclay once said, is the spirit that not only bears up under things, that's actually what the Greek word means, to bear up under, but it's the idea of blazing hope that keeps us running the difficult race, the hope that is set before us. And that's what we need. So now we come to Hebrews chapter 12, remembering that there is and there are no chapter divisions in this letter that was written. And here is the very next thing. Therefore, he says, because of what we've discussed, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So the very first thing he says is look back. And he wants to remind them of this great cloud of of witnesses. We've just mentioned them. Don't forget them. History is helpful in living the Christian life. Church history is amazing because it shows the faithfulness of God even in the midst of the difficulty that mankind has to face. So the very first thing he reminds them is that they need to look back and remember the cloud of witnesses. The Greek word for witness is the word Uh, where we get the English word martyr. And it's not just the giving of your life, but it is the witness that is given that sometimes ends your life. 
In our modern vernacular, martyr always means someone who dies. But in a sense, every witness dies. We die to self so we can share the Lord Jesus. So we have witnesses all around us encouraging us and we are to recall their faith. Now, I I mentioned before that I don't think these individuals are in the grandstands watching us run and cheering us on. I I don't know for sure, but I'm not, I, I don't think that's what this portion of scripture is saying. They are witnesses not of us, but witnesses to us. They're not people watching us run. They're people who have already run and then to us are witnesses and give us great encouragement. This is exactly what Paul said back in Romans chapter 15 when he said, for everything that was written in the past, and he's speaking about the Old Testament, was written to instruct us or teach us so that we through endurance, the endurance taught in the scriptures, and the encouragement that the scriptures provide might have hope. So the whole book of the Bible then is described as a book written for us to encourage endurance and remind us that the scriptures are true. And we are to embrace that to our heart. So it's good to look back. We don't want to live in the past, but we should not be ignorant of the past. And the psalmist constantly was remembering the great things that God had done. When you study the word meditation, it's meditation on the person of God and meditation on the works of God. And when you, in your mind, go through the catalog of God's amazing sovereign works, starting with creation, and the battles he won for his people, bringing bringing them out of Egypt and creating a people for himself. When you think about those things, it instills in your soul courage and faith. So look back. The second thing he tells them to do is to look in. And this is the section of scripture that starts off, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Pastor Doug read from the New Living Translation, which is really refreshing, and you've got something like the Phillips paraphrase. Some of you might read the message. I think it's helpful to read this section of scripture in different translations and even paraphrases because it just helps to fill our mind with the vision, the image of what he's trying to get to us. It's time to look in, self-examination. Now, we should not always be looking in the past, but it can be helpful. We should not always be looking within, but it is needful. And when you do an examination of your own spiritual progress, you will be discouraged. But what we are to do when we look at our own lives is to remove anything that holds us back anything that hinders us, and the sin that besets us. Now, one translation has it, the besetting sin. And so we've come up with a whole theology about a besetting sin. There is one sin that trips me up. I don't think that's true of anyone. I think there are multiple sins that trip you up. 
multiple sins that trip me up. There may be one that you, or two, that you uh, especially are drawn away to, weak to resist, but that's not really what this passage is saying. There's no definite article about the word sin. It is talking about sin in general, and we are to remove what hinders us and the sin that always entangles us. Now this is the imagery of the race as we're going to see in a moment. And anyone involved in an athletic contest knows what it is to take off any weight. Think of a boxer who comes out with his robe. I've never yet seen a boxer go into the fight still wearing the robe. Or think of a batter on deck before he comes to bat in a major league game. If you watch closely, he'll be swinging two or three bats. And that's not because he plans to use them. On one of the bats, he'll have what they call a donut. It's a weighted sphere, circle, and it goes on the end of the bat and then sticks to the wider part of the bat, and the batter swings that. What he's trying to do is get his muscles prepared. He's trying to swing something heavier than what he's actually gonna swing when he gets up to bat so he can somehow hit the 90-plus mile-an-hour fastball, now 100-plus. I've never seen a batter go into the batter's box with the donut on his bat. Maybe it's happened, but someone would have yelled at him and said, hey, idiot, take that off. Nor does a Christian get involved in the race as a believer with all kinds of entanglements. Did you know good things can weight you down? Robe's a good thing. Batting donuts a good thing. But too many good things are going to weigh you down. And sin will always trip you up. So you've got to remove them. The scripture is replete with urgings and exhortations to kill the sin within. Put to death, mortify the deeds of the body. I don't think we do enough killing in Christianity. And I'm referring to the sin within. Oh, you don't have any. I'm sorry. This isn't for you. We go about it as though we don't. What is the sin that you're battling with right now? Name it. And Try to put it to death by the power and strength of God. You've got to do that before you run. So this whole idea of removing. Eric Barker wrote a book called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. I don't know if the book is any good, but I love the title. And in it, he talks about strategic quitting. Quit doesn't have to be the opposite of grit, he says. There's a thing called strategic quitting. Once you've found your passion... You need to quit secondary things that hold you back from success. And that's true in the Christian life. What is your passion? To know Christ. To make him known. All right, if that's your passion, then you've got to put to death some good things. Not all good things. 
but you can't do all the good things without being held back from the race. And that's the next thing we see in our text, this whole idea, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. The Greeks had an Olympics every five years, often held in Corinth. In fact, if you go to the ruins of the original city of Corinth, they have discovered the starting blocks for these original Olympic games far before the modern games. And it's pretty amazing just to see those. The Greek city-states would come together and compete And if you were running in a race, the course was marked out for you, and it's still the same today. Did you notice those words, run with endurance, the race marked out for you? You cannot run where you will. You must run the race marked out. And so the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 20, I I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only goal is to finish the race and complete the task that Jesus has given me. And for Paul, the task was testifying of the good news of God's grace. And then when Paul died, he was able to say, I have finished, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Each one of us is in the race. Once you come to Christ, you start the race. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And what is needed is perseverance. Get rid of everything that weighs you down, and then you've just got to persevere because it's going to be hard. It's going to seem impossible. And it is without Christ. But here is one of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible. Because not only do we look back and see others that have been victorious look in and get rid of the things that hinder us, we now need to look up. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of the faith. Fixing our eyes on Christ. This is not the first time he told us to do that. It was also stated in Hebrews chapter three. We'll we'll comment on that in a moment. But to fix our thoughts on the Lord Jesus. Or sometimes the word consider is used. But here I love the imagery. Fix your eyes on Christ. And you're gonna find that throughout the scriptures. We are to fix our eyes on Christ for salvation. Think of Isaiah uh, 45. Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be saved, for I am God and there is none other. Looking to Christ for salvation. By the way, we put that in song, don't we? If you from sin are longing to be free, look to the Lamb of God. He to redeem you died on Calvary, look to the Lamb of God. Look and live, look and live. So our first look to Christ is the look of faith to be saved, that initial look. But then we are to look to Christ for this thing called sanctification because he is the pioneer 
and he is the perfecter of our faith, right? So you've got salvation, and then you've got what we call the doctrine of sanctification, which means growing more Christ-like. And you still need to keep your eyes on the one who started you off and the one who's going to keep you going, the one who will perfect your faith. And we have a song for that. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The more you see Christ in his beauty, the more you will, the less you will desire these dim, dingy, temporary things of the world. And then we are to look to him, the one who is the perfecter of our faith, for the coming day when he perfects it. We're to look to him for salvation and for sanctification. We're also to look to him for glorification. That is, we are looking for the blessed hope, right? And the glorious appearing of our great God, even our Savior. We're looking for that day and longing for that day to be in his presence where sin no longer exists. And the race is done, and the battle is won. And so we sing, look ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now, from the fight return, victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. Crown him, crown him, crowns become the victor's brow. So when you look to Jesus, you see him as savior and you see him as sanctifier and you see him as the sovereign king who is coming to introduce a new world order. When we look to Jesus, somehow that consideration of Christ instills in our soul the courage to keep going. The courage to keep running. Because remember, they were thinking about quitting. So, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. You might ask the question, who is Jesus? The author and finisher of our faith. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Boy, that's... Good Friday and Easter roll all together. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross? You see, Jesus looked beyond the cross. The cross was suffering. What did he endure? Physical pain? The actual crucifixion? Social shame? He died as a criminal. And the religious leaders mocked him. But don't forget this one. Judicial wrath. For on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God for sinners. His suffering was really great. And you might even add to that this filial detachment. Which simply means, my God. My God, why have you left me? 
why are we separated? That's the height of suffering for Jesus. The physical stuff, as bad as it was, was nothing compared to the spiritual stuff. That's what he endured, but why did he endure it? For the joy that was coming. The suffering led to satisfaction. So wonderfully proclaimed in Isaiah 53, where he saw the travail of his soul and was satisfied. Why are you going to the cross, Jesus? I am purchasing the salvation of everyone who puts their faith and trust in me. I'm laying down my life for sinners. And while that's not a pretty thing, I look beyond it. It's like a mom going through labor, right? I had the privilege of being there five times. People will ask about the differences of the birth of our five daughters. And I'll say, well, the last one, now that was quick and easy. And I'll never forget the first time I said that, Nancy gave me one of those looks. <laughs> Might have been quick, but it wasn't easy. It's easy for me. I mean, you know, trying to find her in the hospital. They took her up to the room. By the time I got there, Kendra was almost born already. It was pretty easy. Why do women do it? Why a, fi a fifth daughter or a fifth child? Why? For the joy that comes after child. I've never had a woman say, but I just love childbirth. I mean, I just love the pain. No, you love what comes afterward, and that's why Jesus died, because he wanted to ransom a redeemed humanity for himself. That's why he endured, and that's why you endure, because we're looking to the one who endured, and consideration of him instills in our soul the courage to keep going. This may not be the only reason, but this is one of the big reasons many people quit. They've lost sight of Christ. And we're to fix our eyes upon him. Moses did, by the way. Moses fixed his eyes on Christ. We read about that in chapter 11. He disregarded uh, for the sake of Christ all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward, just like Jesus, looking beyond the present to the future. And then we read in verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, he persevered because he saw him. Moses saw him. David saw him. This is Psalm 16. Bit of a paraphrase in verse eight. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Verse 11, you show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy and at your, your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I always keep my eyes on the Lord, David said. He's at my right hand and someday I'll be at his right hand. It's possible. In fact, when you look to Jesus right now, where do you see him? Hebrews chapter 12. Seated at the right hand of the Father. What does that mean? Victorious. 
He's accomplished his purpose. He's done all that he needed to do to satisfy the just righteousness of God. That's where he is, victorious. And that's where I need to look. Now here's the big question, and maybe the hardest question of all. You must see him. But how do you see him? Well, Hebrews chapter three told us, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts upon Jesus, the one we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Fix your thoughts. So it's not seeing him with the visible eyes. Remember, he's invisible. We're seeing the one who is invisible. But it has to do with our thoughts. All right? Secondly, it has to do with scripture. I love the translation that is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. And this is the New American Standard, which probably is the most literal English translation of the original Greek. And it says this, but we all, with unveiled faces, Moses uh, had his face veiled when he came down from the mountain, and the, uh, sometimes the priests would have veiled faces even, and the, there's a veil over the old covenant because it can't be seen clearly. But we all, with unveiled faces, looking at as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Notice, looking in a mirror at the glory of the Lord is what transforms us. What does that mean? The word of God. This is how you see Jesus, right in this book. And then the thoughts begin to meditate, to see him. I, I'm not advocating that you will see a hologram of the Lord during your devotions. I'm not encouraging you to come away with a vision where you saw him, but I want you to see him just as real by faith. And it's crucial that you do. Let me add a third. This is prayer. Psalm 5.3, my voice shall you hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning, I will direct my prayer to you and look up. What is prayer? I hope prayer for you is not just reciting some things, kind of in yourself. Prayer is a looking up. It may not be literally, but it should be at times. Hands held up in supplication, sometimes heart bowed in reverence. But you're trying to see him, you're trying to talk to him. He is everywhere, but he's high and lifted up, seated at the right hand. Look up, see him, see him. And you're never finished with your devotions until you really do which means sometimes I walk away from my devotions a bit discouraged because I don't think I've seen him. Psalm 123 says, I lift up my eyes to you, O Lord, whose throne is in heaven. That sounds a lot like Hebrews 12. 
And this is how I do it. As the eyes of a slave look to the hand of the master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to you, Lord our God, till you show mercy on us. It's the look of humble submission. It's the look of supreme devotion. And it's the look of genuine adoration. When's the last time you've seen Jesus? D.L. Moody one time was studying the subject of love and he got so full of the subject of love and God's grace. Just filled his heart. He couldn't contain himself. I think he was studying grace that particular time. And he ran down the stairs out to the streets of Chicago and grabbed someone on the street and said, have you seen grace? (laughs) Well, grace, who are you talking about? And he began to talk about the grace of God. I've seen it. I've seen it. And when you see Jesus in his beauty, the one in whose law I delight, when you see the glory of Jesus Christ, everything is different. And that should be the goal of your devotions because you cannot run the race without riveting your eyes upon Jesus. Verse three, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners against himself so that you won't be weary and faint and quit. A message given to a group of Hebrews who thought that maybe, maybe Jesus wouldn't win. There's an interesting story after World War II. The city of Berlin was divided among the victorious allies. And West Berlin became part of Europe, but East Berlin became part of the Soviet Union. And in that godless society, they did everything they could to eliminate the Lord. They spent a lot of time taking down crosses off the top of every church in the city of East Berlin. And then the Soviet Union beat the US in the space race during the Cold War. Remember that? They set up Sputnik in the late 50s, I think it was. Oh, and they rejoiced in that victory. So much so that they built, erected a tower over 1,200 feet that looked like a rocket, and near the top was a sphere on that tower, and that was to represent Sputnik. The tower had 140 stain, um, stainless steel panels designed to reflect the light. And the whole imagery was simply this, to celebrate the superiority of the communistic system. But while it was being built, 1969, some of the residents of Berlin noticed something amazing. When the sunlight struck that sphere, that Sputnik representative at the top, the sun made the sign of a cross. Well, this couldn't do. So they tried to paint it, and it didn't work. (laughs) When President Ronald Reagan in 1987 was at the Brandenburg Gate and 
urging the Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, to tear down this wall. He also made an allusion to this by saying, there are symbols all throughout the city of love and worship that cannot be suppressed. Today, the tower attracts more than a million visitors. There's a restaurant up there. People are drawn to it. And the Berlin guides point the cross on the tower that could not be removed. You cannot eliminate Christ. Where is he? Victorious. On the throne. It is finished. And we are more than conquerors when we see him and we follow him. Let's pray. Lord, no one needs this message more than I do. But in essence, this is the message we need every day. To see Christ in the scriptures, to meditate upon who he is, to pray and lift up the heart of faith and the eyes of faith so that we might see this victorious one, see him with our heart and our mind and our soul and submit totally in worship and adoration. And then having seen you to keep running, to run today, to run tomorrow, looking unto Jesus, the one who got us going and the one who guides us to the end, victorious. It's in your wonderful name we pray, amen. Let's close with that chorus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. If you need the hymnal, it's hymn number 300.